Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That with the 440th edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back. Once again, it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to talk all things AEW and NXT. We are just under three weeks away, both from AEW Double or Nothing and NXT Battlegrounds. There is an absolute ton to get through on today's show. We are not going to waste any time off the top today. Allow me to remind you right away that this podcast is all about So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. And on Spotify, you can actually leave comments in some of our episodes. So if you leave some comments, hopefully positive ones, we'll read those here on the show as well. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, highlights, analysis, and so much more again on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And there's One more thing that you can remember. I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because if you head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, you can become an official getting overhead. Subscribe for a $5 monthly fee. Get bonus audio, news posts, and so much more. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Link also available in our Twitter bio at getting overcast. All right, a loaded show for you today. Plenty to discuss when it comes to AEW and NXT. So guess what? I was truthful. Not going to waste any time. Let's get right into it. We will start with AEW. As always, if you're listening to the show and you're a fan of only one brand or the other, you can head over to the episode description, find the timestamps, and make that jump. But again, as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. Like I said, we'll kick things off with AEW. Now, Tony Khan, before the show, promised a pay-per-view episode of Dynamite. And while it certainly was not that, it was a hell of a show and definitely one of their best TV episodes of the year. No doubt about that. Rampage, on the other hand, and I know I sound like a broken record, people. It was just a total piece of shit. Like it was a colossal waste of time for me. That said, Dynamite on Wednesday was awesome and the matches themselves, many of them, were particularly notable. So let's go ahead, break down everything that happened on both shows. We're also going to give a little bit of a preview ahead to next week as well. On Dynamite, Kenny Omega and John Moxley inside a steel cage was the main event. They brawled outside before entering the cage, only for Blackpool Combat Club to run down and attack Omega, with the Elite only making the save eventually a couple minutes later. Uh, Brian Danielson jumped on commentary with Nick Jackson threatening him and then doing a stage dive onto BCC members. Security eventually separated them all as the competitors actually got in the ring to start the match. I didn't love the start because it kind of felt forced, but it was very smart by AEW because what they did was they ratcheted up the intensity for the match and they gave viewers an opportunity to change the channel and tune into AEW for the main event before actually ringing the bell. People are talking about it on social media. Hey, the match is getting started. Maybe you're watching the NBA playoff game like I was. Now, I didn't flip because it was my favorite team, so I kept it on NBA. But nevertheless, I was like, oh, that match is starting. You know, here's the timestamp that I need to maybe go and look at. And I actually ended up watching the main event first before I did the rest of Dynamite on Wednesday night. But my point is that actually works. And AEW has seen um, 
you know, as every TV show does, as every wrestling show does, the rating declines as the show goes on. Now, there's moments where it can go back up and go back down. But generally, where you start at the 8 p.m. hour is not where you end in the final segment. And AEW recently, it has been dropping off significantly because of the NBA playoffs. So this was their opportunity to try to say, hey, make sure you tune in for this 20-minute segment because this is going to be the most important part of the show. Anyway, Omega used a barbed wire steel chair early. Uh, Mox bled about three minutes after the bell. Omega about five minutes after the bell. At least it was appropriate, but it didn't really add much to the match, the blood. Omega ate a superplex onto that chair, and Mox broke the top rope off the turnbuckles to choke him with it. Then he dumped glass shards onto the canvas in a callback. Omega hit a move that completely missed the glass. Mox countered one-winged angel into a sleeper. Omega broke it by dumping him backward, this time his back going into the glass. They exchanged open hand slaps. Omega hit a snapdragon into the glass and a few V-triggers, the last of which broke the cage wall in a planned but very good spot. Mox stole a screwdriver from a cameraman who just conveniently had a screwdriver like on his hip, and I think it may have even been in his hand, ready for Mox to take it. So that was nice for him. Uh, Only for Don Callis to jump into the ring, steal it away from him. Omega hit a V-trigger behind the distraction that Mox basically had. Then he hit a ripcord V-trigger plus one-winged angel, only for Callus to break the fall by stabbing Omega in the head with the screwdriver. Mox then basically just covered him for the one, two, three. Danielson seemed completely shocked and surprised with it on commentary. Omega then bladed to sell it as Callus stood over him and threatened to stab him again. Instead, he just threw it away, kissed Omega hard on the forehead, threw him down, and then pointed to the scar on his head or his brain or both. I'm not sure what he was really doing there. Uh, Danielson, when they shot back to him on commentary, now he was smiling, and the ending just kind of dragged and dragged and dragged. It was better than what AEW normally does, where the thing ends, the show ends. But it was also like twice as long as it needed to be. It seemed like the match ended one or two minutes earlier than it should have. Now, first off, the match was great. Uh, I went 4.25 stars and an A, If I watch it back, and I don't know if I'm going to, but if I do, I could see going a little bit lower than that, but it was definitely in that range. Strong cage match with some great sequences. I'm not sure there's much more analysis to do on the match itself. Now, the turn for Callus was predictable given the story that they've been telling, but it was really executed well. The idea is surely that Callus wanted to manage Omega, the best in the world single star and world champion across multiple companies, not Omega just one of the members of the elite. He was trying to keep him away from the trios and all the tag team action, if you remember, but Omega kept refusing and putting himself back into it. Then the Konosuke Takeshka recruitment was finalized, and perhaps this is Callus basically moving towards Takeshka permanently and away from Omega, who clearly doesn't want what Callus still wants for him. It doesn't seem like he's going to the BCC given the reactions of Danielson and Mox, You would have thought there'd be a celebration. They'd all hug him and lift his arm or something like that. So it doesn't seem like he did this with them in mind. Now, that said, he and Takeshka could align with the BCC. That's possible. This does seem to be leading to a lot of other things happening. What I could see, just one example of where this could go, is BCC is feuding with the elite. Uh, Hangman Page comes to uh, the elite's rescue and like officially is back with them. Takeshka then goes over to BCC with Callus's like rubber stamp, basically, hey, he's going to be your extra. And then the elite need to add one more name. And the name that they add is Kota Ibushi. So now you have 
the Golden Elite and Hangman Page, and then you have BCC with Takeshka, and you do a Blood and Guts match. That is my guess where this is going. I don't know it for sure, but that seems to be what was indicated here. And that's a really hot storyline. It's good. I mean, I saw people jumping on Twitter. Oh my God, this is already better than the Bloodline storyline. I mean, you got to be just shitting me. It's it's not. It's 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 not in the same atmosphere or stratosphere, I guess, as it. But it's a damn good wrestling storyline. And I'll tell you right now, it's way better than the main event storyline they have going on right now with the world championship. So let's keep going here on Dynamite. Uh, Claudio Castagnoli, the ROH champion, fought Ray Phoenix, one half of the ROH tag team champions in a double jeopardy match. The gimmick here is the match winner would get a shot at the other's title. This opened the show and you knew already who was going to win. Claudio hit a great gut wrench slam of Phoenix off the ropes, plus the hammer elbows and a cross arm Liger bomb for the win. A lot more happened in the match, but I just tried to keep the breakdown short. The win gives two uh, Blackpool Combat Club members a future tag team title shot. It was a damn good match. Kind of lacked story. The finish was sudden and the booking just came out of absolute nowhere. Like it's good that Tony wanted to put on pay-per-view caliber matches on TV. Like as a viewer, that's fantastic. But as Chris and I just discussed on the Tuesday WWE episode, wrestling is not just about the in-ring action. It's about the story as well. And yeah, they kind of like, I think it was on Rampage, maybe gave a little bit of an explanation of why they did it. And then on Dynamite, they did explain what Double Jeopardy meant, which was a huge positive. But like, it just happened. And it shouldn't just happen when it's a stipulation like that. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus for that. On Dynamite, MJF in a taped interview style promo told his story and perspective of the four pillars. Of course, he said he's the best and the one with the most longevity out of all of them with the gap between him and the other three growing rapidly. There was also a CM Punk reference here for the first time since Brawl Out. It was the best promo we've gotten from MJF or really any of these guys in this extended feud in a few weeks. There were some decent ones at the start and it was tough to argue with his points, which makes it a great heel promo. There was also an extended taped promo package for Sammy Guevara with Chris Jericho putting him over. Then we saw Darby Allen doing stunts and shit at his home with his dad. And he explained that he does that type of stuff to break down barriers in his head. Then Jungle Boy was last with a video package where Christian Cage actually put him over the same way Jericho did Guevara, despite Christian obviously having issues with Jack as of now. His was easily the worst of the four Jungle Boy. Jack is just not at all a good promo. And when he does try, he's not believable at all. It was nice for AEW to do something different and show these guys all in their own elements. It was an injection of, I don't want to say life, but it was an injection of, of difference um, in this storyline that they've been telling, which again, started well, but kind of got off the rails and then really got convoluted from a booking standpoint. I also found it interesting that MJF was the one who like addressed all of them and the four pillars as a whole, but each of the other guys only for the most part talked about themselves. So, you know, overall, look, this is the match we're getting. We don't really have a choice, right? That's what they're giving us. I think it's going to be a great match, a great fatal four-way. I just don't love it. I'm not really excited about it, and I should be, because it's their four pillars, whether you believe they are the four best young superstars or uh, superstars, sorry, wrestlers, um, or anything else in the company, it just doesn't feel as important as AEW is trying to make it seem. Now on Dynamite, Miro walked into Tony Khan's office, making a return appearance to the company for the first time in eight months, during which he's largely been healthy and sitting at home. Then about 15 minutes later, Thunder Rosa did the exact same thing, and she's obviously been, been gone for an extended period of time as well. 
now before I get to like the details, don't we know in kayfabe that Tony sits in gorilla position the entire show? Like we've seen it more than a dozen times and we know that is where he is and nowhere else. Whereas in WWE, just as a, you know, apples to apples example, we never see Vince McMahon or never saw Vince McMahon in gorilla position. He was always in his office because that is kayfabe where he was when television was going on. So why are they walking into Tony Khan's office when we know he's not there in kayfabe? Is it nitpick? Maybe, but it stood out to me in a massive way. I digress. Tony then appeared on camera to talk about how AEW and Dynamite are so great. He said, stay tuned next week to TNT for an announcement and then watch Dynamite for more on that announcement. So you guys remember when Tony promised not to be an on-screen character? I digress again. I did find it funny that he basically admitted, hey, we got a lot of talent that we haven't been using or at least haven't been using well. So stay tuned because we're gonna tell you how we're gonna use them. To be even a bit more snarky, it was also an announcement of an announcement, which is like peak Tony and peak AEW, as well as the fact that the guy didn't blink the entire time. Now, he is still way, way, way improved on the mic in like the last two of these that he's done compared to anything he ever did on camera the prior like three years. And I really think more than anything else, it's just them doing takes and someone actually producing him. But man, we got to figure out a way for this guy to blink, number one, and two, not just read off cue cards, because that's what he's doing. He's reading off cue cards or memorization every single time. This is the head of the company. He should be able to speak extemporaneously to some degree, especially if it's pre-taped. It's one thing if it's live. If it's live and you want him to read off a cue card, fine, I understand. But but a pre-taped segment, let the guy just go out there and talk. Let's hear him as a normal human being. It's just very odd the way they keep presenting these. Now, the announcement for next week is going to be both AEW Collision, another two-hour show live on Saturdays, as well as an overarching deal with Warner that will almost certainly include streaming on Max and perhaps even pay-per-views on there as part of the subscription or not, perhaps a separate charge. There's rumors that the deal may be $1 billion, $200 million per year for five years. And if that's what they get, it's, I mean, it's freaking astounding, but hey, that's where sports rights are these days. And given the current writer strike in Hollywood, content like AEW and WWE is more valuable than it's been in, already has been in a long time. Now, only speaking personally here, not about how good this is for AEW as a company, because it is good for AEW as a company, and we will talk about that next week when we actually get the details. But speaking personally, Collision is going to be awful for me. It screws up our podcast schedule. It screws up college football Saturdays for myself and Chris. And there's going to be plenty of weeks where it's literally going head to head with a WWE premium live event, which is just bothersome and annoying. And then what happens to Collision on nights where AEW has a pay-per-view on Saturday? Because during football season, they don't go on Sunday because of the NFL. So are they going to run it six to eight? and do like a Sunday night heat type of deal ahead of the pay-per-view, maybe that is exactly what they do. And you know what? That's a pretty good idea. Now, if this was 6 to 8 p.m. every Saturday, I would find it much more palatable than 8 to 10 p.m. live on Saturday night. But again, let's go ahead and find out what they announce when they announce it. Hopefully the show is good, so it makes any pain that I'm going to experience worthwhile. But for me, as of right now, looking at it personally, 
The scheduling really sucks. One other takeaway that we're going to get into more next week. If AEW does get $200 million a year, and let's be clear, this is all in. So it would be for Dynamite, for Collision, streaming, and we'll find out about pay-per-views. WWE is absolutely going to rake it in for their media rights, especially because Peacock and streaming is completely separate from their TV deals as of right now. They could be looking at a $2 billion deal just for TV if they ink five-year deals, maybe even more. The SmackDown ratings right now are nearly three times dynamite, and some weeks the demo is nearly, it's like one and a half or two times. Now, we'll see next week what happens with AEW, and we'll see going forward what happens with WWE. Now, if memory serves, I believe WWE's current deals are five years, one billion with Fox, and five years at 265 million annually with USA Network, which probably puts them, really quick math, it's probably wrong, around 2.3 billion over the lifetime of those five-year deals. So I actually misspoke a moment ago when I said a $2 billion TV deal. I mean, we're talking three, 3.5, I mean, maybe more. So it's just gonna be really curious to see not just if WWE extends its deals with Fox and USA respectively, if NBC gets involved with, uh, you know, going for SmackDown, if, you know, Fox doesn't pony it up right away, if WWE also signs an all-encompassing deal, because look, if NBC Universal is going to go ahead and let's just make believe, add SmackDown, then it has SmackDown, Raw, NXT, and the streaming library. Well, you got to put all that together and just do one all-encompassing deal. It doesn't make any sense to have, you know, three separate deals going, or, or in this case, probably two separate deals going. So it's just going to be entirely curious in terms of what goes down with AEW next week and then what goes down with WWE uh, soon after. But holy shit, I mean, if 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 AEW gets five years, one billion, I don't care what's included in that. Like if it's all in, that's great. I mean, it's not diminishing the value of that deal for them. It's a, still a billion dollar contract. It's still $200 million a year. That allows them to basically do whatever they want in terms of acquiring talent, in terms of running venues, traveling, whatever. It's a huge difference from what they're currently making with Warner. All right, enough of that. Let's get back to everything that happened in AEW this week. On Rampage, Jericho in his locker room apologized for not being on commentary due to Adam Cole's attack. He demanded they not be in the same building together going forward, seemingly playing off like the CM Punk reports. On Dynamite, Jericho got a court order banning Cole from any building or arena he's in. Roderick Strong stepped up challenging Jericho to a false count anywhere fight. Jericho appreciated his loyalty and claimed that he actually has a whole army behind him. Strong then revealed a paper that banned JAS from the building for their match. There wasn't anything overly wrong with it, but it's odd to immediately go to Falls Count anywhere from a challenge out of nothing, and then for Strong to have a stipulation on a match when Jericho had not even agreed to it. So a little bit too much like suspension of disbelief for me. This is what AEW does so frequently. They, instead of doing a two-segment deal to create a match or create a storyline, they shove everything into one segment and they skip a lot of logic on the way to it. So that's always frustrating to me. On Dynamite, the international title was on the line. Orange Cassidy against Daniel Garcia. There were a couple short promos on Rampage with Orange admitting he's injured. There was also a weird spot in the middle of the match that led to a like half of a stun dog millionaire. Orange also hit beach break. 
Garcia mocked him with the lazy offense like every opponent does, but at least he didn't let him put his hands in his pockets this time, kicking him in the face, hitting a big pile driver. Orange had a second beach break, but Garcia put him in the sharpshooter and then a triangle and then a crossface where he stomped on Cassidy's hand. Then they did three pinfall counters. They messed up in between the second and third, and Orange eventually escaped with the win. The finishing sequences here really put the match over the top for me. 3.5 stars and a B, I think, is pretty fair. AEW has done a great job leveling up the international title, thanks largely to Shazam Fury of the Gods. In all seriousness, though, the title has been elevated. It is the clear number two men's strap ahead of the TNT. It's been a great title reign for Orange. It's now clear that whoever he fights in a featured spot, maybe at double or nothing, will be the one to take advantage of his hand and beat him for the title, which is a really nice built-in excuse given he's a babyface and he needs a reason to lose. On Dynamite, Julia Hart fought Anna JAS in a no-holds-barred match. Anna hit a gory bomb outside into a pile of chairs, then put a trash can on Julia doing a roundhouse kick, but instead connecting with her butt. Then she piled chairs in the ring only to eat a superplex that literally missed all of them. Hart then put her into a butterfly submission on top of the chairs and got the win. Now, I credit them for some of the bumps, no question, but it was not particularly a good match other than that. On Dynamite, there was a trios title match, House of Black defending against Bandito and Best Friends. Now, this was the first match under the open house rules. The faces got to choose the third rule, if you remember from last week. Somehow, despite the rules being announced last week, and these guys being in a title match and knowing they were going to be in a title match, they didn't know they could choose a rule. So on the fly, they picked that Julia Hart was banned from ringside. Like straight up, these guys looked like total freaking morons and absolute idiot baby faces for not knowing they could pick a rule. And then when learning of it, choosing an awful stipulation after Julia had just wrestled one segment earlier. Now the match was wrestled with the entire arena dark other than a bright light on the ring itself. The visual was really cool. There were some different graphics also going around the arena on all of its big boards. I'd probably tweak it just a little bit to make it look better for TV. Everything was just kind of washed out. I have to believe you can do the same concept, but have it come through better from a picture standpoint. Uh, this started extremely slow. Bandito hit a crazy spinning crossbody crucifix bomb and picture perfect Tope Con Hero in a great sequence. But Chuck Taylor got tagged in for Dante's Inferno and in a really quick turn of events with the heels retaining the title. After the bell, it was shown that one of the Aussie Open guys attacked Orange backstage. Strong match overall, as I said, a really unique visual that gives House of Black and their title matches a different aesthetic. It was a fine match with Bandito as the easy and obvious MVP. The post-match was kind of idiotic. These international title feuds mostly have no rhyme or reason, and they just, like, happen. Just build some fucking storylines for the title. It's really not that difficult, or at least it shouldn't be. On Dynamite, the Outcasts and the AEW Originals did the whole back-and-forth taped promo deal where they somehow knew what each other was saying despite being in completely different locations. It was to book a six-woman tag team match next week. Presumably, this leads to the specific women's title match at Double or Nothing. On Rampage, Mark Briscoe was backstage with the Jeff Jarrett crew that still needs a name. They were basically trying to get him to convince FTR to give them a title match. I don't understand why FTR needed to be convincing. They've already got two singles wins over them, so that didn't make any sense. Then we got Briscoe against Preston Vance in like a throwaway match. Briscoe countered a lariat and hit the J-Driller for a win. That was obviously really cool. Uh, match picked up in the finish, but it was far too long to be on one of the matches that we get across three hours of AEW TV. That said, he had family and friends in attendance, so it was nice they got to see him. And then on Dynamite, 
FTR called the heels out, promising to accept the challenge if the heels just admitted to using Briscoe to get to them. Briscoe came out announcing the title match was official with him as the special guest referee. So the heels didn't even agree to that. He just was like, yeah, no, the match is official and I'm refing it. Then he passed out cups so that everyone could toast. I assumed it was moonshine. It might've been vodka. I don't really know. Sanjay Dutt took a big swig and sprayed it in Dax's face, blinding him. The heels attacked the faces. Briscoe tried to play mediator and stop them all when Dax all of a sudden grabbed him and hit a pile driver because he was blinded and didn't know who he did it to. I thought this was a fun bit and quite well executed as well. I still think the match is ridiculous. I think these guys being the title challengers is absolutely absurd given the number of tag teams in AEW, but they've at least made it interesting with the special guest referee. This segment on Dynamite was by far the best thing we've gotten in this entire feud. On Dynamite, Christian Cage and Luchasaurus hit the ring with Christian getting ultra cheap heat on Detroit, saying he deserves a title shot based on his career accomplishments. Rather than soak in the heat, though, he just powered over it, which I thought was dumb. I want to hear the crowd boo him, not him screaming over the boos. He talked about his opponents all having daddy issues with Arn Anderson filling that role for Wardlow. He talked shit about Arn's career and threatened Wardlow. Christian literally lost his voice during the promo because he was screaming the entire time and not soaking in the heat for even a moment. But I do credit him because he got the crowd going in a major way, and I'm sure they're going to try to repurpose this every single week going forward. On Rampage, we had the firm deletion. Vanguard 1 met the firm at the entrance in the daytime after they broke a mailbox. Then it blinded them, and suddenly it was nighttime. The faces shot fireworks at them. Matt Hardy was, I'd say, 75% broken, and Stokely Hathaway dipped out quick. Jeff choked Big Bill with a stick, and it honestly looked like he killed him. But... Big Bill popped up like two seconds later. Matt's kids wound up chasing after Stoke with a toy car. He wound up in the Hardy's Theater with the kids. Rebby and Senor Benjamin all attacked him. Ethan Page dumped gasoline on the Hardys, and Big Bill delayed lighting them with one of those like candle lighters like that your wife or maybe you might have in your home. It was just like, why don't why didn't he have fire? (laughs) A regular lighter or something. It was so weird. Isaiah Cassidy did his odd like moan thing that he does. And then hit a swanton bomb on the heels off of some big shed thing. Rebby hit Twist of Fate on Stoke in the practice ring. Maxell then did a swanton bomb from the second rope, and she put them to bed. She's like, that's enough kids. A hook suplexed Lee Moriarty through a table. You barely saw Hook this entire time. I don't even, it was weird that he was even involved. With Cassidy doing a leg drop on Bill through another table. That left Page one on four against all the faces in the practice ring. The Hardys hit their finishers and Matt got the one, two, three. Jeff also lit some design on fire in the sand, I guess signaling being reborn or something. And he screamed, thank you, God, at the end as Rampage went off the air. So this was simultaneously the worst out of any of these deletions, yet still entertaining in parts. Really, Stoke was just incredible, as one would expect. Cassidy did get me laughing with the part I detailed, but this was kind of like Major League 3. Like, Major League 1 was incredible. Major League 2 was still very good, and I was glad they went back to it. And then Major League 3 just did not need to happen at all. This did not need to happen at all. On Rampage, Dustin Rhodes was excited about AEW going to Austin, Texas, saying anything can happen. Brian Cage then attacked him from behind and stepped on his neck. When Swerve Strickland walked up, saying the Mogul Embassy is the anything that can happen. Then Keith Lee came in after the attack, but it was too late. I still, folks, I just, I do not understand why this one-on-one feud continues to involve Dustin Rhodes. We're three weeks out. I'm sure they're going to put 
Swerve and Keith Lee on Double or Nothing. I at least have to imagine they're going to at this point. But they have killed interest in this feud. It is nowhere near as hot as it was when Swerve did the double stomp on the brick on Keith Lee's chest. His mogul affiliate guys are gone. Now he's with the embassy. No one gives a shit about the embassy. Keith Lee has completely changed his aesthetic, which is fine on its own. But now he's teaming with Dustin Rhodes as like an old man tag team that no one really asked for. And Keith is only an old man because his hair is gray. The whole thing, I'm sorry. It is just fucking dumb as hell. That is one big pile of shit. On Rampage, the Lucha Bros and Vikingo fought Powerhouse Hobbs, QT Marshall, and Aaron Solo. Vikingo was obviously the MVP with all his high-flying stuff. The faces did a triple tope. Hobbs then attacked Alex Abrahantis for no reason whatsoever on the ramp as the Lucha Bros hit their finisher with no one else from QTV coming to help. It's always nice to see flashy moves, but this was nothing at all. And then lastly on Rampage, Jade Cargill fought Gia Scott. It wasn't clear whether this was a title match or not, but honestly... Who really gives a shit? It was another Jade squash on Rampage, a total eye roll. She has this record. She hasn't fought any of the top women in AEW. Just a total waste of time segment as usual. This is for crap. And that was AEW this week. As you can tell, I thought the highs were really high. I thought the lows also were really low. Double or nothing is coming up. I think there's only two dynamites left on the way to that. So it's going to be interesting to see what they put together here for that show. Clearly, you know, there's going to be a couple big matches, something involving BCC and Elite, the Four Pillars title match. Jamie Hayter will defend the women's title against one of the members of the Outcast, the tag team title match, FTR, against, I assume, Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal from that group. Uh, Orange Cassidy will probably have a international title match. It looks like we're going to get Wardlow against Christian Cage for the TNT title. I don't know if Jade Cargill and the TBS title are going to be on the show. It doesn't seem like there's a second women's feud that makes any sense right now, unless she fights Taya Valkyrie again, but we've already seen that. So, you know, who knows? But Double or Nothing is shaping up to be a solid card. I wouldn't say spectacular by any means, but we will see what happens over the next two weeks. With all of that out of the way, let's move over to NXT, which itself was building for Battleground and did have a lot of interesting stuff happen on its show. Braun Breaker fought Trick Williams in the main event. Trick was getting faded up in the barbershop earlier in the night. Carmelo Hayes said he's almost cleared, and Trick didn't have to fight for him, but Williams said he wanted to do it for both of them because this was a big opportunity for him. These are always their good segments, but what's interesting to me is no one's ever getting cut in the barbershop. Like, Trick has braids, and they're not touching his head. They're not, they're not shaving or fading or doing anything. They're always just sitting in the chair talking shit, and no one's getting cut. Not only them, but anyone else in the barbershop. So it just it's always odd that that's the case. Uh, Braun later said that he hasn't changed his attitude, but he has stopped caring about NXT and representing the fans. Then he threatened to put Trick in the same hospital as Mello. And I, I just gave a short recap of his promo, but let me be very clear. This was easily, easily the best promo of Braun Breaker's career. Not even an argument otherwise. Mello later saw that promo in the shop and decided to get Trix back at NXT. Breaker's entrance got updated a little bit, but it still featured all the 80s colors of a baby face, which just go away from that. Just change the color scheme. I don't know why it's so hard. Trick moved away from the boxing gimmick. He had more basic wrestling gear, including shorts and boots. Braun dominated early until Trick got a second wind. He had a flashy hop over Uranagi, only to soon get caught and press power slam by Breaker. Trick then went for trouble in paradise type of move only to get caught midway through it, like midair, 
with a spear. Then he tapped out in the Frankensteiner after gutting through the first wave of the pain from it. Braun locked it back in after the bell. That led Mello out to make the save. He went for a springboard move when Breaker took his ass out of midair with a straight-up devastating spear right to his taped ribs. This is one of those moves that audibly makes you pop when you see it. I made a noise out of my mouth when I saw him hit the spear. It was wild. Braun then held the title over Mello, saying it belongs to him, which didn't really fit with what he said earlier about not caring about representing NXT anymore. Regardless, Trick is still extremely green in the ring. That's understandable because he hasn't really gotten much work since debuting on TV. The ceiling for him is really high, but he absolutely needs to get more comfortable between the ropes. And really, he shouldn't main event NXT again until he proves that. The post-match was phenomenal. Breaker's spear was probably the highlight of the entire show. This was easily his best work as a heel since the turn, and one of his best nights as a personality-driven character in his entire NXT run. Like you all know, I have been immensely critical of him over the last couple of months, but this was a huge, huge positive momentum shift for Braun Breaker. That was a good one, yeah. The Women's Championship Tournament got started with two quarterfinal matches. Tiffany Stratton against Gigi Dolan was the first. Gigi cut a bit of a strange promo. Then she had a Bronco Buster before eating a falling double stomp. Stratton got a handspring elbow in the corner before botching a rolling senton and hitting the prettiest moonsault ever for the win in five minutes. It was a really rough match, and it made zero sense for Dolan to lose in five minutes. It didn't even make sense for this to be a first-round match. Then we got Lyra Valkyria against uh, Kiana James. Kiana backstage talked about checking off all the goals on her list in her first year in NXT, except for actually winning this title. She's a much better promo, by the way, than an actress. Lyra got another promo while running in the forest. They countered pinning combinations to start. Lyra went on a run with a Northern Lights suplex bridge. James got her knees up on some type of flying move and hit a powerbomb. Lyra eventually caught Kiana with a roundhouse kick for the win in nine minutes. This was eons better than the first quarterfinal, night and day. Actually surprised Lyra got the win, but it was nice to see her get a push. Like She's actually been featured a lot since debuting in the United States with NXT, but she's lost every single time. Really, my only criticism is like, this is the fourth finisher she's tried in NXT, and it's another boring, simple move that is in everyone's repertoire. She's way too talented not to have a stronger finisher, and I fail to understand why they can't come up with one for her. It's clear they're trying because they keep using different ones, but none of them are working, so just figure it out. I mean, give her a unique finishing move. I don't know why it's that difficult. And briefly, before we move on, let's have a quick look at this NXT Women's Championship Tournament bracket. So on the left side of the bracket, Gigi Dolan and Tiffany Stratton, we already talked about Stratton advancing, but also Roxanne Perez and JC Jane. So allow me to read those four names again. Gigi Dolan, Tiffany Stratton, Roxanne Perez, JC Jane, four of the most featured women on the entire brand. Then you go to the other side, Lyra Valkyria, Kiana James, Fallon Henley, and Cora Jade. Obviously, Lyra advancing past Kiana, and then Fallon Henley and Cora Jade, the remaining quarterfinal match for next week. I'm not suggesting that like Kiana, Fallon, and Cora haven't been on TV, and Lyra has recently as well. But when you think about the prominence in this women's division, if you were ranking all eight of the women in this tournament, one through five, in whatever order, would be like Roxanne Perez, Tiffany Stratton, Cora Jade, Gigi Dolan and JC Jane. So four of those five are on one half of the bracket. 
And then one is on the other half of the bracket, which just doesn't really make any sense. Now, that should mean that Cora Jade, you know, swims her way right into the final at NXT Battleground. And then the question is going to be, who does she face? Do you put Roxanne Perez right back in a feud with Cora Jade for the title after they already have gone head to head and Roxy came out on top of that? You have Tiffany, obviously already winning the quarterfinal. Do you go heel heel? Tiffany against Cora? Does Fallon Henley upset Cora? And then it's Tiffany Stratton and Fallon Henley. That could make sense. Do you have JC Jane lose after just losing in five minutes to, you know, this time now to Roxanne Perez? You know, my expectation is there's really no reason for JC to win against Roxy. So Roxy beats JC, Gigi and JC have their rubber match, whether it's at Battleground or after the fact. We get Roxy against Tiffany Stratton in one semifinal. The other, we already have Lyra. I assume Cora Jade. And then from there, we see. I mean, maybe it's heel heel. Maybe it's Stratton and Jade. I don't know that you have Stratton lose again. Doesn't really make a lot of sense. But anyway, that is the NXT Women's Championship Tournament. Just wanted to break that down a little bit since we're getting another set of quarterfinals next week. Isla Dragunov fought Dijak. Dragunov dominated early, so Dijak threw him off the top rope. He came back later with a discus boot and grabbed a steel chair. The referee tried to take it, so he used the momentum of like the referee holding the chair and threw the referee into the corner. Then he beat on Isla with the chair in a blatant disqualification after a few minutes. Angry at the DQ, he continued attacking outside with a chokeslam into the apron. Then he upturned the steel steps and trapped Dragunov in the gap as he put them on top of his body and stood on the stairs celebrating. Isla acted like he couldn't breathe when he had plenty of space. He obviously could breathe. The whole DQ was nonsensical. Dijak just decided, eh, I'll use a chair here despite holding the advantage in the match at that time. The post-match attack was fine. The steel steps deal was a great visual, but it did require some of that suspension of disbelief. It's like, you can see the guy can breathe. How about he's just trapped and trying to wiggle out of there? You don't need to make it seem like he is choking or anything like that. I'm sure they did this to give them a stipulation match at Battleground. There just had to be a better way to execute it. Uh, the tag team titles were on the line. Gallus against Dyad. Joe Gacy reminded the guys backstage that he sacrificed himself last week for their title shot. Gacy then sent Ava to guide the guys at ringside while he focused his attention elsewhere. Creed Brothers teased Ivy Nile with blue schism-like masks backstage while the D'Angelo family watched the entire match from the crow's nest. The action was strong throughout. Gallus had a double Uranagi. Ava distracted with Dyad taking advantage. As they looked for Ticket to Mayhem, Ivy ran out to attack Ava. That distracted Dyad, and they ate the Gallus finisher for the title retention. Later, Gallus and the Creeds argued in the kitchen. The D'Angelo's later met up with them, Gallus, in the bar, reminding that Joe Coffey was the only reason they retained the titles in their last challenge. They wanted another chance, but Joe said they handle business differently now that he's back, threatening them before the family decided to leave because they were completely outnumbered in the bar. During the match, it looked like they were moving toward Gallus D'Angelo's and then Schism Creed's, but clearly it now seems like it's either a fatal four-way or a triple threat, and maybe the Creed's need to get past Schism before they get in the match. We'll see. Diet has really been showing out on the ring recently, which makes it all the more strange. They're being featured so much when they've requested their release and are going to be out inside of six months. So it's fun stuff, despite it being two heel teams in this match. The storyline extension with the other teams made this the one storyline that actually played out in a significant way over the course of the show. Tyler Bate fought Charlie Dempsey. Bate was meditating with a room full of smoke. I assumed it was incense uh, when Wesley came up saying he hasn't seen a room that smoky since he hung out with Matt Riddle. He kept talking and pumping up Bate, but 
Bate just remained in a trance until the very end when he got out of it. He talked about being on a higher plane, get it? And then they went to the ring. Uh, Bate hit a standing shooting star press and his helicopter when Gacy walked out and got in Wesley's face. Drew Gulak came over, West stepped away, Bate hit a tope onto both the heels. He then caught Dempsey with a bop and bang, but Gulak distracted. Gacy punched Bate in the head on the rebound lariat and Dempsey caught him with a dragon suplex bridge for the win in four minutes. Gacy's involvement was certainly odd and curious. Obviously, he's going to be going after the North American Championship. I just felt it was unfortunate for this to get cut so short because these guys were rolling in the ring. I could have watched this for another 10 minutes at least. It's tough to get used to NXT doing like three decently long matches and then a ton that only lasts a few minutes because you get situations like this that are disappointingly short. Whereas some of the others, you're like, okay, they're neophytes, they're inexperienced, they're green, they can't go more than four or five minutes and really put a whole legitimate match together. But Tyler Bate and Charlie Dempsey absolutely can. So I would have loved to have seen this gone 10-12 and then have this happen instead of four. Dragon Lee backstage said Noam Dar sees him as a threat and only cares about himself and the Heritage Cup. Dar appeared on screen offering Dragon Lee the chance to be the first guest on the relaunched Supernova Sessions talk show. This was something he did, by the way, in NXT UK. Dragon Lee obviously accepted. I did forget how much of a clown that Dar can be. I say that in a positive way. Uh, the video that he did here was really great. Nathan Frazier did his second hard-hitting home truths, saying... The WWE draft opened 17 spots in NXT for talent to rise. He listed a bunch of superstars in their countries, including himself. He focused on Noam Dar, saying that his show was a bunch of bullshit, while his show, Hard-Hitting Home Truths, was to expose truth about people. Then he cut a promo on Dar and ended the show. And this just remains, it's so unnecessary. Like, mostly because Frazier has already proven he can speak clearly with conviction. So he does not need this as a vehicle as much as someone who still has a lot to learn. For example, Lash Legend, okay? Now that show obviously sucked and they canceled it and we haven't even seen her on TV in a while, but she needed that as a way to get over, show character, because the only thing she could really do was talk. Well, Nathan Frazier can freaking wrestle and he can talk. So he doesn't need a knockoff of last week tonight, which again, is not funny. If it, if you're doing a takeoff of a comedy show, it has to be funny. Otherwise, there's no reason to do it. Also, the production of it is really weird. He's sitting behind like a green screen augmented reality desk, I think. But his chair is raised high and you can see his thighs above the desk. That's not how a desk works. The, de the desk goes to your midsection and your thighs are below it, just like John Oliver on Last Week Tonight or any other show, Daily Show or any late night talk show that you've ever seen. Instead, he's like hovering above the desk. It looks bad. It's unnecessary. It's not funny. And again, he doesn't need it. They got to go back to the drawing board here. There is no reason for this to exist at all. Javier Bernal talked shit to Thea Hale backstage. When Duke Hudson came up complaining about grading papers, Bernal suggested Hudson had a nefarious plan. He snapped back with a couple impressions saying, you don't even go here. Then he had a Freudian slip saying Duke University before deciding to get a match set for later. So we got Hudson and Bernal. Thea was an absolute menace at ringside. She was screaming through one of those like collegiate megaphones the entire match. She's a straight up Tasmanian devil at this point, but she's incredibly entertaining at that role. Anyway, Hudson won with a razor's edge. The match was completely unimportant compared to the storyline. Eddie Thorpe fought Damon Kemp. Thorpe got the offense early with Kemp hitting such a perfect roll through Death Valley driver. 
that he literally threw his body outside the ring through the ropes when he hit the move. It was incredible. I mean, he didn't go all the way outside. He stopped himself, but half his body was through the ropes. It was nuts. Uh, Kemp grabbed the ring apron to try to prevent offense, only to eat a boot German suplex and falling tomahawk chop with Thorpe winning in five minutes and 30 seconds. Kemp complained after the bell, suggesting that grabbing the apron was akin to grabbing the ropes. I presume that's what he was saying. It was a good back and forth with both guys showing out. Danny Palmer was filming a video asking for evaluations from guys in the Performance Center on her first match. Hank Walker and Tank Ledger realized, hey, she's getting reps, we need more reps, and they decided to ask Briggs and Jensen for a match. There was no gripe here, just like a good-natured babyface challenge. It was actually nice to see like a friendly interaction on a wrestling show. Uh, Briggs and Jensen fought Hank and Tank. Uh, Briggs was rocking a really strange haircut with like a big puff in the back. He and Jensen hit an inverted atomic drop lariat combo. Tank got a tooth knocked out of his mouth, like for real, and literally took it out of his mouth and put it into his tights. Then he ate the assisted cradle lariat with the NXT veterans getting the win, and they all shook hands afterward. This may have legitimately been the best that Briggs and Jensen have ever looked as a team. It is time for them to get past all the corny bullshit storylines and actually become a couple of legitimate badass country dudes who flash like they did in this match because their ceiling is way higher than what we've seen to this point because of the storylines that they've been involved in. Von Wagner and Mr. Stone were doing a lightning round Q&A game with each other that ended with Stone showing the baby picture with all the stitches and Wagner again refusing to talk about it. Luca Crucifino made his TV debut. This is like a sharky lawyer type of gimmick that they've done on NXT Level Up and you can see it on YouTube and stuff. He interrupted by saying, quote, I couldn't help but hear you're trying to get ahead, making a joke about the picture. Wagner started choking him until he ran away screaming freak. Now, I know, or at least I hope, they are not doing a Lars Sullivan type of gimmick, mostly because they're doing it from a more emotional standpoint. But this kind of feels like a Lars Sullivan project that is not going to work. Maybe I can be proven wrong, but I just have a bad feeling about the entire thing. I'm not saying anything they've done thus far is bad, I'm just saying I have a bad feeling about it. And then lastly, someone in a hoodie was watching uh, rainbow colored clips of the NXT parking lot and backstage attacks projected on a big wall. It was a short vignette with no other details. As it seemed last week, they're definitely playing this up for a debut or a return of someone. I keep thinking it's Blair Davenport. She makes by far the most sense, but we will see what actually happens here uh, with this NXT storyline. And folks, that wraps up NXT uh, this week, a very good edition of NXT television. I thought it was a bit of a downer from a match quality standpoint compared to what we got last week when there were a number of legit bangers on that show. Not as much high quality wrestling, plenty of story. And again, with a couple of weeks left building towards Battleground, they still need to make a number of matches. Right now, I believe the only match that's officially set is Carmelo Hayes defending the NXT title against Braun Breaker. It does seem like we'll get Dijak and Isla Dragunov with a stipulation. Obviously, we'll also have a women's championship match that has been announced. We just don't know who is participating in it. It seems like a triple threat or fatal four-way for the NXT tag team titles. And let's also be clear, we have no information about the future of the NXT women's tag team titles. Maybe we find out Friday on SmackDown. We will see. I should also note there's probably one more match on the show. Heritage Cup, Noam Dar, Dragon Lee and Nathan Frazier as a triple threat. I don't even know if you can do a Heritage Cup match as a triple threat. I need to research that. I should have done that before I did the show. But one or both of those guys, possibly in a Heritage Cup match, maybe the other one gets one on NXT on the go home or after the fact. 
but those three are clearly involved in something as well. And if you put all that together, that does seem like a really solid card for a premium live event. So NXT Battleground is shaping up well. All right, folks, I appreciate everyone listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. On the way out, a few reminders. We will be back next Tuesday with our next WWE episode. And then same bat time, same bat channel. One week for now, our next AEW and NXT episode. Let me also remind you that this podcast is all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on, on Apple. If you leave a five-star written review, we will read it live right here on the show. The reviews, the ratings, so important for us. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis highlights, and so much more. And please remember, I happen to love the number five. Become an official Getting Overhead. Join us, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. $5 a month, bonus audio, at least four shows a week, plus news posts that you won't find anywhere else. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Thank you all so much for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.